Hi there, I'm the guest host for this week's edition of Treks in Sci-Fi. This is podcast 596 for July 31st, 2016. My name is Dave White. I'm a fan of both fantasy and science fiction, of both Star Trek and Star Wars, and lots of other fun topics like those. I'm a long-time listener to the podcast, and I can remember when Rico used to do those midweek podcasts. So, thank you to Rico for giving me this opportunity. Today, I'm going to cover a topic that has been special to me for a very long time, and that is the topic of King Arthur. We'll go over a bit of the history, take a look at the main characters and plot lines, and even encounter some swords and sorcery, not to mention a very, very old wizard. Stay tuned. The story of King Arthur is a wide-ranging saga, an epic tragedy full of sound and fury, signifying hope and faith, full of magic and religion and dreams and dread and honor and treachery, and every emotion under the sun. The Arthur story has elements of fantasy and of science fiction woven throughout, from the beginning to the present day. Indeed, nothing is more fanciful or fantasy-driven than one of the names by which Arthur is known the once and future king. Who wouldn't want to be that? You live for a while, get yourself made king, rule a land, make a name for yourself, get grievously injured, then get taken away to rest up and heal up and wait for the next call, the next time when your land really needs you. Nice work if you can get it. The first writings to mention Arthur by name are from the 9th century. The most famous early Arthur book is from the 12th century. Interest in the man and his legends carried through the years and really took off in the 19th and 20th centuries. And today, in the 21st century, you can easily find more and more Arthur stories being written. They continue to be inspiration for generation after generation of modern writers. Okay, so let's back up a bit. So... We've all heard of King Arthur, right? Legendary King of England. He's the guy who turned back the tide of the Saxon invasions for a time after the Romans left Britain. Well, he has a complicated storyline, and it's full of elements of fantasy and science fiction. So let's break it down. The main elements. As the story goes, the High King at that time was named Uther Pendragon. Uther had a lot of successes as a war commander, before and after he was High King. But, the chroniclers tell us, he got weak in the knees at the thought of being with a certain woman, and so had to rely on the magic from Merlin the wizard to win him the ultimate prize, the woman he desired. And so Merlin conjures up the fog and makes Uther look like Gorlois, his enemy, and the husband of Igraine, the woman Uther covets, and Uther goes to Gorlois's supposedly unstormable castle and spends the night, and Arthur is conceived. In return for his help, Merlin gets a pledge from Uther that Merlin will show up one day and demand the child that Uther has just created. Uther laughs it off because he's got what he wanted, but eventually gives in because Merlin always gets what he wants, and Merlin takes Arthur away to have him brought up in secret. That wasn't the first time that Merlin used magic to help Uther, though. Not long before, Uther led an army into Ireland to bring back some giant stones, 
to deposit them onto Salisbury Plain in a giant circle. Sound familiar? Well, that could have been Stonehenge. Even back then, the Salisbury Plain didn't have a whole lot of giant stone circles littering the landscape. But how did these men get these giant stones out of Ireland, across the water, onto English soil, and then all the way to the Salisbury Plain? Why, Merlin's magic, of course. So Merlin waves his arms and weaves his magic, and the stones are magically on these giant boats, and then they're put on these giant land barges and dragged across half-southern England to be deposited in the middle of the Salisbury Plain. There you go. Stonehenge. Well, that's one story, anyway. Back to Arthur, though. So, he grows up in secret, unknowing of his heritage, and unknown to Uther and his enemies. You can find different versions of this story, with different characters playing different roles. The main idea is that Merlin basically hides Arthur away until the time is right for him to become king. It's after Uther dies, and there's a power struggle on. Powerful men, with lots of money and men behind them, lay their claim to succeed Uther as High King. And Merlin plays a role again, revealing the sword in the stone, with some writing on it. Whosoever pulleth this sword from this stone is rightwise born King of all England. As with most elements of the Arthur story, we have more than one description. Most depictions of this have the sword stuck in the stone. Stuck in. Like, not just sitting on top of, or resting in a slot, but stuck in. You can't get it out no matter how hard you try. And people did. They couldn't get it out. The other description has the sword stuck in an anvil on top of a stone. Same idea, though. You have to pry the sword out of the stone, and or the anvil, in order to get yourself recognized as king. Now, you'd think that you wouldn't be able to wrench a sword from a stone without breaking the sword. In fact, you'd think that you wouldn't be able to wrench a sword from a stone at all. But that's what Arthur does. Young Arthur, who succeeds where so many other older, stronger knights had failed. But as we know, Arthur has a little help from Merlin in this regard. We presume that Merlin uses his magic to help Arthur slip the sword out of the stone. Or maybe the sword was held in there by some gadgetry and there was some trick catch that only Merlin knew how to work, and he whispered the secret into Arthur's ear. Either way, Arthur has an advantage here that others don't. Of course, he has the advantage of the royal bloodline as well, and the idea that other people believe the legend about wresting the sword from the stone is a bit far-fetched anyway. Even so, as we have seen, some still didn't grant Arthur the kingship after this display of fortitude, and Arthur had to go into battle and prove himself militarily to keep the kingship. One of the best of the Arthur movies, John Borman's Excalibur, has a classic version of this classic moment. Here's a clip. sword was stolen, Kay. But here's Excalibur. I was drawing the sword! Kay! Did 
You free Excalibur from the stone? Yes. No, I didn't. Arthur did. The sword! The sword! You freed it, Arthur? I did, Father. I beg your forgiveness. You must put it back. I was your son before I became your king. If I am king, you are king. The more so because you're not my son. And I am not your father. Not my father? Then Kay is not my brother? Merlin the magician brought you to me when you were newly born and bade me raise you as my own. At first I did so because I feared Merlin, but later because I loved you. Who is my true father? Only Merlin can tell you that. And who is Merlin? I am Merlin. Whose son am I? You are the son of Uther and Igraine. You are King Arthur. Merlin! We haven't forgotten you! What trickery is this? He's trying to voice a fatherless boy upon us! Do you want a bastard as a king? Only on the ground, join us against the boy! I saw what I saw. The boy drew the sword. If a boy has been chosen, a boy shall be king! No! I challenge that! The sword has been drawn! Are you with us or against us? Against you! Recognize that Shakespearean-sounding voice proclaiming his support for Arthur? That was none other than Patrick Stewart, Captain Jean-Luc Picard himself, later as Leodegrance. Now, Leodegrance had a daughter and a table. We'll come back to both of those elements in a bit. First, though, we have another sword. Now, as one of the stories goes, Arthur got his magic sword, Excalibur, from the Lady of the Lake. The more traditional version of this episode is that Arthur, with or without Merlin, comes on a body of water in a time of need, and there rising out of the surface of the lake is a hand holding a sword, and Arthur takes it, and it's a magic sword giving him special powers. He cannot be defeated as long as he wields this sword. You can just see the shimmering water in the outstretched hand and Arthur kneeling in reverence as he accepts the sword and the promise it brings. Well, that's one version. Here's another one. We don't have a lord. 
What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a civil majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case be, of more... Be major... quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? <laughs> I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Do you see him repressing me? You saw it, did That's a clip from the wonderfully funny and somewhat historically accurate film Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now, Monty Python and others might argue that such a set of circumstances is no basis for a system of government, but that's how our guy got his sword, anyway. That's certainly a fantasy element, isn't it? You don't see a whole lot of women hanging around in lakes holding up swords, no matter who's marching by. And again, Arthur might be a big, strong, charismatic guy who can fight for what's right and lead and command and get lots of other big, strong, charismatic guys to respect him and follow him, but he doesn't get over the top, so to speak, until he has this great sword, this fantastical addition to his arsenal. It is fantasy that gives him the kingship and fantasy that helps him keep it in the form of the sword in the stone and the sword in the lake. Through the years, those two sword stories have merged into many stories, so that it is Excalibur in both. Whatever its name, that is one bad action sword. Through the wielding of this sword, with Merlin's help, Arthur gains the kingship and keeps it, putting down rebellions and invasions. He has this fabulous court at Camelot, where everybody wants to come and be seen. And it's all happiness and light, until it isn't. In the most familiar versions of the Arthur story, this is discord, the kind that shatters alliances and ruins rulers. The common story is of a civil war, with the rebels being led by Mordred, Arthur's nephew. One thing that most people will recognize about the Arthur story is the love story of Guinevere, Arthur's queen, and Lancelot, Arthur's right-hand man. It is many knights' disgust at that affair that lead them to join up with Mordred against Arthur. Another very familiar element of the story is of the quest for the Holy Grail, the magical, mystical focus for so many knightly adventures. This quest takes place late in Arthur's reign. In the end, though, Arthur and Mordred fight a final epic battle, supported by a cast of thousands on both sides, and it comes down to a mano-a-mano -a -mano smackdown, with Arthur dealing Mordred a killing blow, 
and Mordred wounding Arthur severely. Arthur gives his sword to his one remaining faithful knight, who gives it back to the Lady of the Lake. And who should arrive at this moment but a mystical barge, containing a bunch of healing maidens led by Morgan le Fay, and they take Arthur off to the mystical Isle of Avalon there to be healed. He will, some say, come again. That's our narrative. Let's get down into some of the details. Okay, so Arthur's on the throne, and he has this magical sword, and he has lots of knights, and they have a court named Camelot, and it's all fun and games and sweetness and light. Well, not exactly. Where there is a palace, there is palace intrigue, and so it is at Camelot. Arthur depends on Merlin's counsel and his magic to keep the throne. Many an Arthur story involves Merlin doing this trickery, or doing that misdirection, or weaving a spell, or donning some disguise to discover a plot against Arthur. Merlin plays a major role in keeping Arthur, well, king. So, it's the Dark Ages. Rome has left Britain. Men live and die by the sword. Those are facts. Where does magic come in? Well, magic's not fact, it's fantasy, or it's science fiction, or it's both. And here again we see another element of fantasy and science fiction in the King Arthur story in the figure of Merlin. He is often depicted as a wise man, or a prophet, an old man, and a magician. He has special powers, magical powers, prophetic powers. In one well-known 20th century version of the story, Merlin knows about the future because he is living backwards. More on that later. Some of our stories go into great detail about the scientific elements of what Merlin does, talking about spell components and physics and such, and that's more of a sci-fi bit. The stories of great magical battles between Merlin and Morgan le Fay, or between Merlin and other enemies mowing down large numbers of men on horses in the blink of an eye, suggest more of a fantasy element. We also have a story about Merlin from very early in his own life, when he uses his second sight to keep himself from being killed. Vortigern, who preceded Uther as High King, was desperately trying to get a fortress built, but the walls kept falling down. Each subsequent day, the previous day's building would be rubble, Vortigern's magicians told their high king that he would need the blood of a boy with no father sprinkled on the ground to keep the next day's walls from falling into a heap. And who was the boy with no father? Merlin, brought up by his mother without knowing whose father was. Merlin told this fantastical story of two dragons, one red and one white, fighting far underground in a pool and shaking up the ground so much that the walls of Vortigern's intended fortress kept falling down. So they dug, and they dug, and they found two dragons, one white and one red, and Merlin's life was spared. Merlin is often depicted as a master of disguise. He appears in the shape of an old man, or a young man, or a woodland creature. And like any good magician, he has animal familiars, commonly an owl or another forest bird. 
Right. What's one thing that everybody knows about Arthur and his knights? They sat at the round table, right? Well, there's a bit of sci-fi going on with that as well. Various sources give various sizes for this staple of the Arthurian story. The round table is often depicted as large, large enough for all of Arthur's knights, and Arthur himself, to sit around it comfortably. Well, the number of named knights varies. Sometimes it's a few dozen, so that table is getting quite big already. And yet, one medieval source says that a full 1,600 men could sit at the round table. Further, the table could be folded up and taken on campaign, so Arthur always has it with him. Surely some magic going on there. Independent of the question of how big the table was, we have the idea of the Siege Perilous. Now, this was a seat that no one could sit at without getting zapped from above. This is one of those elements that got introduced late in the life of the Arthurian stories as a means to demonstrate how Galahad, Lancelot's son, was the chosen one. So, suddenly we have this idea of the empty seat at the round table, and no one can sit in it, even Arthur, and a few guys try, and they don't live very long after sitting down, and so the rest of them are all afraid to sit in the seat, and then Galahad shows up at court, sits himself down, nothing bad happens, and it's no longer so perilous a seat. Now remember Leodegrance, the Patrick Stewart type who backed the young King Arthur after he pulled the sword out of the stone? Well, most stories say that it was Leodegrance who gave Arthur the round table as a wedding gift, and that further he gave Arthur his own daughter, Guinevere, as a wife. Guinevere, Arthur's queen, had a tough job. She had to be all things to all people. She had to be nice to everybody at court. She had to give her husband a son who would rule the land after his father was gone. In all of the writings that we have to mention Arthur's queen, we don't find much evidence that she did any of those things well. She began in the earliest Welsh tales as a bit of a mystery. In the earliest English tales, she was more of the same. As we'll see in just a bit, our Arthurian tales take on a big French flavor in the Middle Ages, and it is then that we see the idea of the love triangle, Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot, with which many people will be familiar. The story of Guinevere is rather non-magical, non-fantastic. She is, however, the cornerstone of most stories about King Arthur. Guinevere is one of the more real-world characters in our story. However, her main rival in most of the tales is Morgan le Fay, who is decidedly not a real-world character. Morgan is a queen in her own right, of magic. Her powers are nearly those of Merlin's, if not equal to his, and she's involved in many a plot to undo the good that Arthur is doing. Morgan has knowledge of potions, just as Merlin does. She has knowledge of dark magic, and she has minions to do her bidding. She started out being a sympathetic character, the Queen of Avalon who shows up after Arthur's last battle to take him away to the Healing Isle. However, in later stories, she is portrayed as very much a witch, or an evil magic user, someone who could not stand playing second fiddle to Arthur, or especially Merlin.
And now with Morgan, we have come full circle, for she's there at the end of Arthur's days, spiriting him away to the mysterious island of Avalon, where great healing takes place. Surely his wounds are not so grievous that he cannot be healed, and, after a time of convalescence, come again to save Britain from whatever tide is advancing. It's such a comforting notion, isn't it? Yet another element of fantasy in our story. One other element of our story needs some examination in terms of fantasy and science fiction, and that is the Holy Grail. Entire multi-volume sagas have been written about Arthur's knight's pursuit of the Grail. And despite what the title of a Monty Python film might suggest, Arthur is not one of those who goes in search of the Grail. Now, King Arthur stays home to mind the store, while his knights can vast the countryside in search of the miraculous cup. Many versions of the Grail story involve fantastical adventures by Arthur's knights. Gawain, in particular, gets to beat back a vicious attack by a monstrous lion right after he staves off a massive attack by hundreds of archers. Actually, now that I think about it, Gawain is one of the first superheroes. Gawain is with Arthur from the very beginning. The earliest tales of Arthur and his followers, and they were not knights in the early days, fight monsters and chase after special treasures. Gawain in particular, but also Kai and Bedivere, possess superhuman strength and achieve superhuman status in these wonderful early tales. One of the most popular involves Arthur and his men going after a magical cauldron. They go into the netherworld of Anwen, a thinly disguised version of Hell, to retrieve this cauldron. That's not the only magical vessel that Arthur and or his men go off in search of, and those tales are the genesis of the Grail story. In the Grail quest, Gawain, Percival, Lancelot, Galahad, and other knights encounter angels and demons and fantastic beasts. The Grail keeps appearing in visions, compelling the knights to continue in their quest. The promise is is of everlasting... something... The achievement of the Grail quest is described in various ways. It will give you peace. It will give you understanding or enlightenment. It will heal your wounds. It will perform miracles. At the end of it all, only one knight achieves the Grail quest. That would be Galahad. Not Arthur. Not Lancelot. Not Gawain. Some stories have a guy named Percival seeing the Grail, but he doesn't get all the way across the finish line like Galahad does. Other stories have Percival gaining the Grail, but they are not as numerous as the Galahad-centric ones. Shifting gears just a bit, let's do a bit of a character breakdown for the main players in our story. We all know who Arthur is, and who Merlin is, and who Guinevere is. We've met Morgan Le Fay. Here, then, are just a couple of sentences about the major names in the saga. Lancelot. Everybody knows that Lancelot was Arthur's greatest knight, Arthur's greatest defender. He is said to be from France, or the son of the Lady of the Lake. He demonstrates his prowess again and again, defeating many a knight in combat, on foot or on horseback. 
In one memorable story, he crawls across a bridge made entirely of a giant sword to rescue a damsel in distress. That's one tough dude. Unfortunately, he is also known in many stories as the lover of Arthur's queen, Guinevere. This love triangle in many of the tales results in the downfall of king and kingdom. So Lancelot's story is complicated. Galahad. Many versions of our story feature the beautiful Elaine, who pines away for Lancelot, who is in love with Guinevere. One magical story has Elaine make herself over to appear like Guinevere and convince Lancelot to stay the night with her, and the result is Galahad, the pure knight who achieves the Grail quest. We've already seen how he was the only one who could sit in the Siege Perilous. He does that one better by becoming the most pious and greatest knight in the world, even better than his father. And he excels as well in not falling in love with someone else's wife. Bedivere is one of the earliest of Arthur's followers mentioned. Bedivere is there in the Welsh tales and the Celtic tales long before the English and French writers take over. Bedivere is said to possess great strength and do great deeds. He is also the one knight who is with Arthur at the end, after the final battle. Some stories have Bedivere flinging Excalibur back into the lake, so the Lady of the Lake can take back the magical sword. Where there is Bedivere, there is often Kai. Thus has it ever been, going right back to the early Welsh chronicles. Kai is seen as a fierce warrior who has superhuman strength. He can go without sleep for nine days and nine nights. He can wield death blows at the tip of a hat. He was tall as the tallest tree in the forest. Gawain, we have already met to a degree. He is also one of the oldest names mentioned. He is strong and successful and loyal. He does great deeds. He rescues damsels in distress. He even gets his own rip-roaring adventure, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We'll go over that one in just a bit. Percival is another name that we encounter quite a bit in the Arthurian stories, particularly in the Grail Quest. He's a country bumpkin who sees some knights wandering by his home and wants to be just like them when he grows up. So he grows up and becomes just like them, having adventures and seeking the grail and, in one story, actually getting it. Mordred is far and away the bad guy in most stories about the days of King Arthur. Some, stories, some storytellers have Mordred as Arthur's nephew. Other stories have him as Arthur's son. Even the earliest Welsh tales mention him as being an enemy of Arthur. Mordred is the one who exposes Lancelot's relationship with the Queen. Mordred is the one who gathers disgruntled knights around him as he challenges Arthur for supremacy. Mordred is the one who deals the grievous wound to Arthur in spectacular fashion at the final battle of Camlan. But Arthur, in true hero fashion, has the last laugh because his wound to Mordred is fatal, whereas Arthur, at the end of our story, is spirited away. The writers leave the door open for Arthur to come back through it. Mordred, however, is dead as a doornail. Pelinor was the name of another character who made a name for himself hunting the questing beast. 
This strange beast had the head of a snake, the body of a leopard, the haunches of a lion, and the feet of a deer. That's quite a combination. It must have been incredibly fast and incredibly loud. Tristan and Isolde are a doomed couple in the vein of Romeo and Juliet. Most stories have King Mark of Cornwall as the third side of this love triangle, with Isolde being Mark's wife. The fantasy element here has to do with potions. Some stories say that Tristan and Isolde fall in love because they both consume a potion that makes each fall in love with the first person they see. Now there's an idea that's still being used today. One of the Harry Potter books comes to mind. Another story about Tristan and Isolde involves a poison potion. Well, that's about it for the major characters. Now let's see how they have been portrayed in literature through the years. The first mention we have of Arthur is in the Welsh tradition, dating to medieval times. Arthur is also mentioned in a 9th century work by a monk named Nennius. In this work, Arthur is depicted as a great warrior, wielding great and powerful weapons, and mowing down 960 Saxons all by himself. Definitely some fantasy elements in there. He is also the star of a little book called The History of the Kings of Britain, a book that came out in 1136. The author was another monk, this one named Geoffrey of Monmouth, and Geoffrey made quite a name for himself by writing a bestseller. Now, in those days, they didn't have big publishing houses like we do today. What they had was writers, mainly monks and other educated guys, writing longhand in big bound books, sometimes with illustrations. And to get more than one copy of what you wrote, you had to write it out, again, or get someone else to copy it for you. By the time that Geoffrey was writing, we had a lot of disparate elements to the Arthur story, but not one consistent narrative. Geoffrey tied them all together and gave us the first version of the life and times of Arthur, King of the Britons. Now, Arthur wasn't the only one mentioned in this book. Geoffrey went way back and way forward. Arthur appears in several chapters, as does Merlin. We see familiar stories like Merlin's two dragons and Merlin's moving the stones from Ireland to the Salisbury Plain. We read about Merlin using his magic to get Uther Pendragon into the impregnable castle. We read Merlin's strange prophecies. Here's one of them. The Lion of Justice shall come next, and at its roar the towers of Gaul shall shake, and the island dragons tremble. In the days of this lion, gold shall be squeezed from the lily flower and the nettle and silver shall flow from the hoofs of lowing cattle. Those who have had their hair waved shall dress in woolen stuffs of many colors, and the outer garment shall be a fair index of the thoughts within. The feet of those that bark shall be cut off. Wild animals shall enjoy peace, but mankind will bewail the way in which it is being punished. We read about Arthur's great victories. We read about some exciting adventures. And somewhere along the way, Geoffrey began to include things that had not been written about Arthur before. He's big. He's bad. He defeats a giant in hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
He's the conqueror of the Roman army. He's the ruler of several other countries. Lighter writers think this is a fabulous idea for an adventure story or a morality tale or whatever. And so they put their own slight spin on the Arthur story and the legend grows. In the late 12th century, we get this guy named Crichton de Troyes, and he's the guy who introduces Lancelot to the scene. As you might have guessed from his name, Crichton is French, so it's probably no surprise that he's the one who gives us Lancelot, a French knight. And Crichton is the origin of the Lancelot story and the love triangle and other epic adventures. You won't find much magic in Crichton. He's more of a courtly love kind of guy. Other, later writers build on the, his example, and in the later Middle Ages, we get a whole host of writers collaborating on a massive group of fantastic adventures, and I mean adventures full of fantasy elements, called the Vulgate Cycle. That story about Gawain being attacked by a lion that can jump from the ground up through a second-story window comes from the Vulgate Cycle. So do lots of stories about demons disguising themselves as people and animals, and stories about angels appearing to knights in visions. Epic stuff. The pinnacle of medieval literature of the Arthurian vein, however, is Thomas Mallory. Like Geoffrey before him, Mallory pulled everything together and included all of the Arthur stories in one volume. This was a bestseller of the printed variety. Mallory's work in the 15th century came along about the same time that the printing press did, and they made thousands of copies of this thing. We have in this one volume all of the familiar elements of the stories covered so far. Mallory's work was extremely influential. Even today, his work forms a backdrop for stories about Arthur. In the 19th century, Alfred, Lord Tennyson, produced a series of long poems called The Idols of the King, all about Arthur and Guinevere and the Grail and all of it. Interest in Arthur had waned a bit, and Tennyson's work renewed that interest. Also doing this were two American guys, Howard Pyle and Samuel Clemens. Howard Pyle was a late 19th century author who made a name for himself by writing books for younger readers. He wrote a book about Robin Hood, and he wrote a book about King Arthur. Both books were intended for a younger audience, so he toned down the moralizing a bit and cut out some of the really gory bits. And Howard Pyle's books remain good sellers today. You might have heard of a guy named Samuel Clemens. His pen name was Mark Twain, and he wrote a satire called Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. This book has a bit of magic in it, but it's mainly a send-up of the Victorian ideals set forth by Tennyson. Like many other books by Mark Twain, however, it was a runaway bestseller. The 20th century has given us some wonderful Arthurian fiction. The genre continues to expand through novels and short stories and poems and comic books and films. One of the giants in the field was T.H. White whose collection of books titled The Once and Future King appeared in 1958. This collection contains four books written during a period of 20 years. The first book, written in 1938, is the most famous, and it's called The Sword in the Stone. Now, many of you will know that this book got the Disney treatment, complete with cute animals and other puffery, 
But much of what appeared in that Disney film is in the book, The Sword in the Stone. It's not as flighty as you might think. In fact, the film contains a fierce battle between Merlin and Madame Mim that was in the original book, but not included in the 1958 compilation. The book covers the youth and education of Arthur, here called Wart. Merlin transforms the boy into various animals in order to teach him lessons for his future life. Wart gets instruction from Merlin and from a series of animals. In one memorable sequence in The Once and Future King, Arthur is a hawk who sees no boundaries between lands and cannot understand why people would fight over such things on the ground. The main takeaway from this book is the idea that might should be used for right. The second book is The Queen of Air and Darkness. The title character is Morgause, Arthur's half-sister, and she's the mother of the Orkney clan, Gawain and company. White continues the might for right theme with Merlin's introduction of the idea of the round table. The Ill-Made Knight is the name of the third book, and the title character is, of course, Lancelot. We travel well-trod ground with the story of Lancelot's love for Guinevere, Elaine's love for Lancelot, etc. In this book, Lancelot is far from the ideal knight. In fact, he's made to be quite ugly and untrustworthy. Galahad takes a bit of a bashing as well as the target of derision from his fellow knights. White wrote these first three books in three successive years, but the fourth book, The Candle in the Wind, didn't come out until 1958. This is the end of the Arthurian story. Well, almost. The book starts happily enough, with Pellinore and the questing beast, but Mordred soon takes over the grim proceedings and the story grinds on until... It ends just before the final battle. In true Douglas Adams fashion, there's a fifth book in the four-book collection, a sort of coda called The Book of Merlin, which White wrote in 1941, but wasn't published until 1977, after White's death. This book is a grouping of Merlin's final lessons for Arthur. Some of them made their way into The Once and Future King, so the four-book set is really a four-book set, except it has five books, technically. Among the more amusing innovations in The Once and Future King is the idea that Merlin is living backwards and is getting younger. This explains how he knows all of what is about to happen. Another very well-known four-book collection was written by Mary Stewart. Now, Mary Stewart is much more well-known as a writer of mysteries and romantic fiction, but she did spend a good bit of time writing this group of Arthurian books. Arthur is a main character, but he's not the main character. That would be Merlin. The books are The Crystal Cave, The Hollow Hills, and The Last Enchantment. That would be three books. The fourth book doesn't feature Merlin as much as it does Mordred, and it's called The Wicked Day. The first three follow the early life and later fortunes of Merlin in first person. The Crystal Cave is heavy on Roman elements. In the second book, Merlin becomes a healer and also begins to tutor this young guy named Arthur. And here's a reading from the second book, The Hollow Hills. He was speaking again something about a letter, the message which had come yesterday. He pointed to the stool beside him and where the parchment lay, crumpled as if he had thrown it down in anger. Did you know about this? 
I picked the letter up and smoothed it out. It was brief, a message from Brittany that had been sent to the king at Tintagel, and brought here after him. King Budek had fallen sick of a fever, it said, during the summer. He had seemed on the way to recovery, then, towards the end of August, he had quite suddenly died. The letter finished with protestations of formal friendship from the new king, Hoel, Uther's devoted cousin and ally. I looked up. Uther had sat back in his chair, shifting a fold of the scarlet mantle over his arm. Everything seemed quite still. Outside the wind had dropped. The sound of the camp came from far away, faintly. Uther's chin was sunk on his chest, and he was watching me with a mixture of worry and impatience. I was non-committal. This is heavy news. Budek was a good man and a good friend. Heavy enough even if it had not destroyed my plans. I was preparing to send messages even when this letter came. Now I can't see my way clear. Have they told you that I go to a council of kings at Viraconium? Audagus told me. Audagus was the officer who had escorted us from the ferry. He threw out a hand. Then you see how much I want to turn aside to deal with this. But it must be dealt with now. This is why I sent for you. The third book is The Last Enchantment, and this book starts with Arthur as king and Merlin as a master spy. And because this is Merlin-focused, the end of the book focuses on Merlin, not on Arthur. That's the trilogy. The fourth book is all mordered all the time, and Stuart does not portray the young man as a villain, but as a victim of his fate. These are great books, compellingly written and engaging to read. You do not find a whole lot of King Arthur books that focus on Merlin as a main character. Stuart is a great writer, and these books prove it. Far and away, the queen of female writers in the Arthurverse is Marion Zimmer Bradley. She was already a famous fantasy author when she wrote The Mists of Avalon, published in 1983, and this book was a phenomenon. As reimaginings go, this is a big one. The women are the focus here for four books wrapped into one. Morgan Le Fay, here called Morgane, is the lead actress. She's the big focus of Book One, Mistress of Magic. She is Arthur's half-sister and the priestess of Avalon, the Magical Isle. She has special powers, as do many priestesses. She has the sight. She can see things that others cannot, things that are happening far away, in time and space. She has knowledge of potions as well. Her center of power is the Isle of Avalon, center of worship of the goddess and the pagan religion in Britain. Bradley's sweeping work shapes the Arthurian story into a religious struggle, with Morgane and Merlin and all of the forces of Avalon trying to hold on to the old ways in the wake of the advent of Christianity and its female champion, Gwenifar, and yes, that is the Welsh name for Guinevere. She's the focus of Book Two, The High Queen. This religious tension simmers throughout the novel. So, what sets this book apart? Well, we could discuss plot lines. Bradley borrows from Geoffrey of Monmouth in having Merlin transform Uther into the likeness of Gorlois in order to lust after Igraine. 
Arthur, wielding the greatsword Excalibur and armed with a magical scabbard that keeps him from being seriously hurt, flies the Christianity batter, banner and wins many great battles. He has a great court at Camelot. Arthur unknowingly fathers a child with Morgaine, and this child is the undoing of the king and the kingdom. Lancelot falls in love with Arthur's queen. Merlin gets himself overmatched by a powerful sorceress. Arthur gets taken off to the Isle of Avalon. The end. Sounds familiar, right? Well, Bradley stays true to much of what has come before, but she also breaks new ground, including a great many scenes involving the women. We see women spinning, making clothes. We see women sharing their innermost thoughts, their hopes and fears. We see women fighting. We see women giving counsel to their menfolk. The singularity of this work is in the crafting of the backstories and the depth of the characters, especially the women. You can find in this novel great differences in tone, in characterization, and in plot from what has come before. A well-known male writer of the late 80s and early 90s is Stephen Lawhead, author of The Pendragon Cycle, a series of books that takes more of a historical bent, starting with the escape of the Lady of the Lake from the destruction of Atlantis. The series has six books, each with a one-word title, and four of them are first-person accounts of the major players. Oddly, the third book, called Arthur, doesn't feature a first-person narration by Arthur. Galahad, though, gets to tell the story in Grail. The last book, Avalon, is more of a coda than a continuation. It's set in the near future, and it's all about the reincarnation of Arthur. Sort of. Once upon a time, in a land that was called Britain, these things happened. These are the tales of the land we call Logris, which means the lost lands the country that was once ours, but which our enemies now call England. These are the tales of Arthur, the warlord, the king that never was, the enemy of God, and the best man I ever knew. How I have wept for Arthur. That is the opening of The Winter King, a novel by Bernard Cornwell. It's the first in a three-book series known as the Warlord Chronicles. The second book, as the quote hinted, is called Enemy of God. The clincher book is titled Excalibur. The person who uttered that quote is Dervil, a monk who manages to accompany Arthur through his epic struggles, all the way through the great Saxon-smashing victory. At the same time, Merlin's off on a quest to get a magic cauldron. Dervin is telling the story well after the fact. Here we see echoes of Marion Zimmer Bradley as Cornwell references a conflict of politics and religion between old times and new. The Celts still go for the really old ways, the Roman gods have been around for a few centuries, and then there's this relatively new religion called Christianity. Well, you can see the conflict, can't you? You might know the name of Bernard Cornwell more from the Sharp series of novels, made more famous by Sean Bean in several specials on TV. Bernard Cornwell also went on to write a series of books under the umbrella Grail Quest, which naturally focused more on the story of the Grail. And that is a tiny look at the story of King Arthur, 
a bit of the history, a bit of a character breakdown, and a bit of the literature through the ages and down to the modern day. There is a lot more. It is a wide-ranging story with many entry points and many famous characters, events, places, and things. It is an epic story, a magical story, and overall, both a sad story and a triumphant story. With a nod to M5, we can find a couple of King Arthur connections in Star Trek, and this is from our friends at Memory Alpha. In Deep Space Nine, both Kira and Jadzia visit a holosuite program based on Camelot. And two Federation starships have been named the USS Excalibur. The first was the one viciously attacked by the M5 computer in the original series episode The Ultimate Computer. The second featured in both TNG and Voyager. In The Next Generation, Commander Riker was a commanding officer in the episode titled Redemption 2, the Season 5 opener. The Voyager episode was Survival Instinct from the sixth season and had the Excalibur surviving a Borg attack but losing a few of the crew to assimilation. Well, that's all for this week's Treks in Sci-Fi. I'd like to thank Rico again for giving me this opportunity to share the story of King Arthur with all of you. This is Dave White, signing off.